This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 198, Cats. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. I won't lie to you, I am not a fan of cats. They made me cry, literally cry, and not in a good way. But even the dog lover in me has to admit they are pretty cool. This week we will discuss how lions and tigers and Russian blues all managed to be represented on Noah's Ark, how Jordan Peterson has almost convinced me to pet stray cats, how to tell the difference between a leopard and a leper, spiritually speaking, and how my pettiness interferes with my pursuit of board gaming happiness. We'll start with what I've been preaching. The word cat does not appear in the Bible, not once. But if all land animals were created on day six, that would have to include cats. And it means cats were on Noah's Ark. The problem is there are a lot of cats. And although the Ark was pretty gigantic, space was limited. Once you give rooms to the tabbies and the Abyssinians and the Angoras, not to mention the lions and tigers and jaguars, there might not be room for the Great Danes and the Bulldogs and the gasp. English Springer Spaniels, and you know we can't have that. Thankfully, there is such a thing as microevolution, which is by no means to be confused with macroevolution. Macroevolution, with an A, is the process that allegedly guides the transformation of one sort of animal into a completely different sort of animal. When you hear science teachers talking about evolution, generally this is what they're referring to. It's how we are supposed to have come to be all the way from inanimate protoplasm to worms to fish to reptiles to apes to biology professors. Charles Darwin, way back in the day, proposed that future efforts in paleontology and anthropology would unearth mounds and mounds of fossils that would fill in the countless gaps that now exist between the various animal forms, and particularly between apes and humans. Well, Chuck, we're still waiting on that. Despite what you may infer from textbooks and diagrams, including that ridiculous National Geographic Ascent of Man diagram that is somehow still circulating out there. There are no intermediate forms between the animals and the humans to be found in the fossil record. In fact, considering that even the most primitive of the so-called pre-human species are said to have lived between 200,000 and 2 million years ago, there are shockingly few fossils at all. You can't stick a shovel in the ground these days without finding dinosaur bones, which are supposed to predate all mammal forms by tens of millions of years. But we find a tooth that looks generally human in the whole scientific community goes bananas. Anyway, I digress. The point is, evolutionary scientists have generally believed in a slow, gradual evolution of the various species of animals because it's the only way they can make their theories work. It's what we in the religious community would call a leap of faith accepting what cannot be seen and never will be seen because of your fundamental core beliefs. Be careful calling it a leap of faith in front of an evolutionist, though that might not go well. Microevolution, on the other hand, is something we can see working all the time. We have documented evidence of how one strain of horses or giraffes or tomatoes or cats evolves in a specific direction, generally because of selective breeding. It's measurable. It's relatively predictable. Everyone believes in microevolution. But being able to breed a house cat with different coloring or longer fur through generations of specific planning and forethought has nothing to do with entirely new animals evolving from entirely different animals without any intelligent oversight. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. 
Genesis is not a science book and should not be read as one. All it says about cats is that beasts of the earth were created to reproduce after their kind, according to Genesis 1, 24 and 25. If that means lions and tigers and jaguars, I'm fine with that. If Noah took two and only two cat-like creatures on the ark and God used them to give rise to hundreds of other forms of cats, I'm fine with that too. Personally, I'm in the middle. It's pretty obvious that the various forms of domestic cats were developed by humans over the last few centuries. And it seems also there's enough of a difference between a tiger and a bobcat to make me think that they probably started in different areas. But in any case, I think it's far more likely that God shoehorned 10,000 cats onto the ark than a single one of them having been a lizard in a previous life. This is what I've been reading. We are dog people in the Hammonds house. We always have been. So I was prepared for Dr. Jordan Peterson's Rule 12 to be my least favorite. Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. I'm allergic to cats, actually. My eyes get puffy, my nose runs, I start sneezing. Not a pretty sight. So it gave me a bit of encouragement to read that Dr. Peterson and his family are also dog people. And after having finished the book, I can safely say that Rule 12 is not my least favorite. I'm not sure exactly which one would be. I truly appreciate all 12 of them. But if I had a least favorite, I don't think it would be this one. Dr. Peterson's point is, the world is full of ugliness. Ugly people doing ugly things in ugly ways. And sometimes it isn't even people. It's just the world. In fact, he spends most of the chapter talking about his daughter, Michaela, and her lifelong bout with pain. I won't try to give details here. If you Google Michaela Peterson TED Talk, you can hear from her own mouth the horrors she's had to endure over the last 20 years. Bottom line, this world is going to beat you up. Your wounds may seem to be more painful or more visible than someone else's, but rest assured, no one's getting out of here alive. And as we wallow in our misery, it's easy to wonder what the point of any of this is, whether life is even worth living. And then a cat crosses your path. And cats are strange like that. They're never really domesticated. They go where they want, do what they want, seemingly indifferent to humans, including their own humans. And as a dog lover, I must admit, I find that fascinating. There's something beautiful there, even seductive. In that moment, Dr. Peterson says, you should kneel down and try to get the cat's attention. You may or you may not. And if you do, maybe nothing will happen. But then again, maybe the cat will approach you. And if it does, he says, try to pet it. Again, the cat may decide at that moment that you are not worth its time and move on to other matters. But perhaps it will permit you to show some affection. It may even return the affection in kind. And that's a beautiful moment. The very fact that things can go wrong in this life is what makes it so wonderful when things go right. It can be something as simple as petting a cat that reminds us of that. The world is no less objectionable than it was before, but it is more bearable, and that's something worth celebrating. Christians, of course, have a shortcut to joy here. Even if every cat arches its back and hisses at us, we believe greater things are planned for us in a completely different existence. Such hope gave rise to a wide swath of hymns written during troubled times. This world is not my home. Won't it be wonderful there? An empty mansion, all of which written during the Great Depression. But if we despair of finding joy in this life entirely, 
we are minimizing the blessings Jesus has for us. How can we rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul suggests, or as Paul requires in Philippians 4.4, if we don't even try? Yes, you will meet with disappointment. Yes, your overtures will not always be returned in kind. But what's the option? Bitterness? Resentment? Cynicism? I don't think you want to live life like that. And I know God doesn't want you to. Life on planet Earth will offer you an opportunity to celebrate from time to time. It may just be a little thing. But again, maybe it's exactly that sort of little thing that will get you through a tough day in Satan's world. So pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Unless you're allergic, of course. This is what I've been hearing. Okay, once and for all. Is it a leper can't change his spots? Or is it a leopard can't change his spots? The answer, of course, is the one that actually has spots, the leopard. I suppose a leper might be said to have spots, depending on the sort of leprosy you may be talking about. And as we've discussed previously in this space, leprosy is a pretty wide swath of afflictions in the Bible. And technically, according to the zoologists, leopards have rosettes, not spots. That is to say, their fur pattern has black blotches that combine to form little rings. The cheetah, on the other hand, has an actual spot pattern, and the jaguar has rosettes with spots in the middle of them. I say all that just in case you were ever attacked by all three of them at once and you want to properly identify them before you die. Yes, I have spent my fair share of time watching Animal Planet over the years. But back to lepers and leopards. The saying seems to be rooted in Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. His point was that his own generation was so accustomed to sin as to make it their nature. They were never going to change. That's why God was bringing the Babylonians to punish them. I think my own personal confusion is the fault of Elvina M. Hall, who wrote the lyrics to a hymn called Jesus Paid It All, one of two hymns actually in our hymnal that goes by that name. The second verse of this particular hymn reads, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Leper, not leopard. Whether she misremembered the passage in Jeremiah or was completely unaware of it in the first place, probably didn't matter back in 1865 when she wrote the hymn, and it certainly doesn't matter now. There is a sense in which people with leprosy in Jesus' day had spots, and Jesus took them away. It may not have been Jeremiah's message, but it is a good message, nevertheless, and certainly one worth singing about. Since I have a couple of minutes left in this segment, let's dig a little. When Jesus healed someone of leprosy, that was an amazing thing, and I certainly don't want to minimize the significance of a sign like that, particularly for the person who was being healed. But ultimately, it is, pardon the expression, skin deep. Plenty of things that fell under the biblical heading of leprosy simply went away on their own, or were nothing of serious consequence. I think this is the sort of healing people want from Jesus these days. They want to be accepted. They want fellowship. They want to be free from the hardships of life, hardships that are frequently a result of their own choices, by the way. There is healing in Jesus for such afflictions, after a fashion. But Jesus can do better than that. 
Jesus can transform your very identity. They say a leopard's spots are like fingerprints. No two animals have exactly the same markings. I've always wondered how scientists can say things like that with absolute certainty. Like saying no two snowflakes are identical. How could you possibly know that? But again, I digress. If you do a web search for can a leopard change its spots, you'll get a wide variety of blog posts all essentially saying the same thing. No, it can't. If you were to shave it bald, the patterns would grow back exactly the same. Now imagine being able to give your cat a bath, and good luck with that, by the way, all you cat owners, and wash their spots away, changing their identity. What if I were to tell you Jesus can heal those sorts of spots just like the other? Jeremiah's contemporaries, like sinners in many other Bible contexts, are described as being completely irredeemable. But these are overstatements and generalizations given to make a specific point. The absolute truth of the matter is, any sin can be forgiven. Just a few generations before, the worst king in Judah's history, a man named Manasseh, repented and was forgiven. You can read his story in 2 Chronicles 33. If God can change that cat's spots, there's hope for anyone. This is what I've been playing. Isle of Cats is an extremely well-received game, loved by fans and critics alike. We don't own it. We've never played it. And that isn't likely to change. There are several reasons. One, we have several games that are similar and that don't feature cats. And the rest of my family is not any more favorably inclined toward cats than I am. The game involves taking oddly shaped pieces, what gamers call polyominoes, and finding spots to play them on the board. We have lots of games that do that kind of thing. Two, and closely related, the oddly shaped pieces are essentially depictions of the bizarre physical alignments that cats find themselves adopting from time to time. Are they made of rubber? Do they have bones at all? Tracy's even more freaked out by this phenomenon than I am, and she has no intention of staring at it on the game table for an hour or so. And three, well, you know, cats. For the record, I don't doubt that the game itself is very enjoyable, that we would like it if we gave it a try, that we might even kick ourselves for putting off the experience as long as we did. It's happened many times before. But it won't happen without of cats. We're not exactly hurting for board game options at the moment. We are looking for reasons to rule games out, not reasons to talk ourselves into yet another purchase. So we will pass by on the other side with regard to Isle of Cats and hope against hope that it will not turn out to be a tragic decision. I can afford to be flippant and petty about Isle of Cats because I know, even in a worst case scenario, my life will not be materially affected one way or the other. It did make me think, though, about the variety of ridiculous reasons people have given for not giving their lives to Jesus. I remember a childhood friend who decided around age 10 he would never go to church again because Sundays were the only time he got to himself to play. Except for Saturdays, of course. And weekday evenings, and holidays, and summers, and half of Sundays, as far as that goes. And grown-ups are just as bad. Jesus will inhibit their football-watching plans, or their drinking themselves into a stupor plans, or their fornicating plans. I continue to quote 1 John 5, 3 to such ones. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And they continue to disregard the warnings. Don't talk to me about how my car is on fire. I'm too busy driving it off a cliff. 
I can understand if someone blames God for killing their child or blowing their house away with a tornado or permitting various diseases to run rampant throughout the world. They're wrong to blame God in such circumstances, and I welcome opportunities to explain why, but I can understand it. What I struggle to understand is when people act like the question of God's existence and sovereignty isn't worth their time and attention. Really, what could possibly be more important? Again, if you've devoted years of study to the matter and come out on the other end as an atheist, I understand. You're wrong, but I understand. But dismissing God without a second thought? Who does that? Grace is free, certainly. Romans 6.23 and a host of other passages say so. But grace must be claimed. It is a gift waiting for you behind the door, but you must open the door. You must make the choice. So do yourself a favor. Think long and hard about the implications before you turn your back on God. This is not just a game. This is your eternal soul. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.